Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, dirty, putrid, disgusting, filthy, wretched, worthless, bourgeois pig. (laughs) So true. And I just summed up the movie. You did. There you go. I'm surprised you didn't do it in a French accent. I had thought about it. Yeah. Uh, so what is Jason talking about? Well, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1967, and we are at our foreign film episode. And uh, as Jason alluded to in last episode, you can't really talk about foreign film or film in general in this period without talking about Jean-Luc Godard who released three films in 1967. And the one we are talking about is the most famous of those three. And one of the most famous films he's made, period, is Weekend. Yes, but let me ask you one question about this film, Josh. Uh-huh. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, that is an essential question, not only about this film, but about many Godard films. Yeah, uh, this is like the crystallization of Godard, what the fuck? Uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways it is. Uh, although having watched uh, another Godard 1967 film, Two or Three Things I Know About Her, uh, you could say that about that <laughs> film as well. <laughs> although not in a in, in as uh, sort of, grotesque and as you alluded to like like violent and intense way that movie is more cerebral and what the fuck and like what is he talking about i mean they should teach that in like film history classes this is from the godard what the fuck period so which is a long period it's for like him. most of his career really. yeah <laughs> and it's quite a long career at that but i mean another amazing thing to me is i mean godard obviously is a huge titan of cinema and continues to be but In 1967, this was like a major event film. And the fact that a movie like this and a filmmaker like Godard could get that much attention is pretty awesome. It's kind of punk rock, right? I mean, that's what it feels like, right? Like the Ramones when you in 77, right? You're like, what? What the fuck? Fast, loud? Are they any good? I'm not exactly sure, right? But I, I don't think Godard could have existed outside of France at this. Not to say that other stuff wasn't happening all over the world, but this is like that country supported this type of movement and, you know, the French New Wave, like we talked about. But he was wild, dude. He's, I don't know what drugs he was on, but I assume a lot of them. Yeah, I don't know about that, but certainly he is, his, his films are, are crazy. And I think a lot of other French New Wave figures uh, went more in the direction of as they got more well known and had more resources making films that had a little more conventional elements and Godard went in the opposite direction. And I think one of the things we have to say is like, we keep talking about this year as like a breakthrough year of film, but like the idea of playing with the form, which is so essential to the French new wave. um, These guys were all doing that. And you know, that's what I mean when I say this, I don't know if this could have happened in any other country, but um, that's part of the excitement when you're saying it was like an event, because I think people were like, seeing how different the form of film as they knew it could be. Yeah, I think so. I mean, these movies are, whether whether you like Godard's films or not, these movies, especially the movies he made in in the 60s, and he made 612 films. (laughs) He made 15 feature films in, I think, seven years in the 60s, which was really his, like, essential period after which he 
really went off the deep end and made movies that not very many people saw mm. um, and continues to do so. But those movies that he made in the 60s are uh, like foundational for so much of yeah. what films do from that time onward. Yeah, that's true. Like, you know, leading up to this, I watched Breathless, which I had never seen. And, you know, there are negatives and positives of all of all movies, but of all Godard movies, right? But there's so many things you see in a movie like Breathless where you're like, oh, this is where the beginning of that language in film comes from. That like, even if there are things you don't like, you like it because everything becomes referential to it and everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I love Breathless, although I haven't seen it in a long time. I've seen like nine or 10 Godard movies, all from this 60s period. And there's, I've had a range of reactions, certainly. And like I said, more recently watching two or three things I know about her. And that was just quite a chore mm. to get through, let me say. But you can still be impressed with the technique of it and see how influential it is. And there's other Godard films from this period that I think are, are really great. I think we'll talk about those in the legacy. That's I, a tease, baby. Stay with us. I think we will. So for this movie in particular, I couldn't find any box office info on this. It would be curious to see, like, did it actually succeed at the box office? So. I don't know if that info is out there. I wasn't able to find it. It's approximate budget is $250,000, um, wherever that number comes from on good old Wikipedia. But um, you can see some of that. Uh, I mean, this is definitely a, a movie that would have required some money to create. Yeah. Dave, how much is 250000 today? Can you look that up real fast? 250 can you do it in your head dave uh, dave what was the inflation rate back then also taking world event considerations what's inflation okay yeah but, but josh I, i'm asking him to look it up to reiterate that point which is like the production value is awesome on this thing right and to make it for only two hundred fifty thousand, whatever that equals today is like whoa he put all the money on the screen yeah he did i mean he he created these amazing set pieces of these car crashes um, and he also hired, you know, Godard is known for working with some of the same actors over and over. But for this film, the stars, uh, Mireille Dark and Jean Yann, were major French uh, TV stars. So he on purpose kind of brought in well-known faces to his weird ass world. Mm -hmm. Two million dollars. I would think if you saw this today for two million, you would say like, they really spent the money well. Like, right. Because you're not just talking about car crashes, you're talking about sequences where everything has to be lined up and meticulously planned out and the, the set design. I mean, Wes Anderson, like, hey, when we're talking about reference points, you can see something like this leading to where he goes with. Yeah, yeah. Certainly those, those set pieces are really impressive. Again, regardless of how engaged you are with the story, I guess we could say there's a story <laughs> of some kind or the themes of the film. I can't wait for you to break that down <laughs> <Yeah>. for me. <laughs> uh, but those set pieces are amazing. And so this movie came out in December 1967. It was the third Godard film of the year. Uh, the others, two or three things I know about her and uh, La Chinoise, which I have not seen. Um, those were the other films. And so Godard was, as established, a huge deal. And critics were certainly highly anticipating this film and, and mostly were rapturous over it, although uh, with some reservations. Uh, Roger Ebert said, year after year, Jean-Luc Godard has been chipping away at the language of cinema. Now in Weekend, he has just about got down to the bare bones. This is his best film and his most inventive. It is almost pure movie. 
it is sure to be ardently disliked by a great many people, Godard fans among them. But revolutionary films always take some time for audiences to catch up. Weekend is about violence, hatred, the end of ideology, and the approaching cataclysm that will destroy civilization. It is also about the problem of how to make a movie about this. Movies about the bomb are almost never effective. The subject is too large. So Godard abandons any attempt to show us, quote, real war or destruction. Instead, he shows us attitudes, the casual indifference to suffering that saturates our society. Mm, no. No, Sorry, you don't think so? <laughs> I mean, you know, I disagree with a lot of that. You know, well, you know, you look at Kubrick. He made an all right movie about the bomb, didn't he? Right. I mean, that's a that's a satire. And that movie did exist by this point I think, or not? I think I'm it was sure. a few years earlier, Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. Um, but I mean... This has satirical elements. Oh, absolutely. So, it does. Yeah. Um, I, I, what do you think he means when he says like, this is a, what does he say? This is a movie at its purest form or something? It is almost pure movie, yeah. he says. Yeah. I like that. But uh, yeah, 64. Yeah. So what, what do you think that means? Uh, I mean, I'm not entirely sure, but I think maybe it's the idea of, again, boiling it down. And as we kind of uh, reference, the, there's not really a plot or even discernible character. I mean, there is a plot and there are characters, but they're all sort of abstracted. Yeah. I think to me what that means is that the particular medium of film, like this is could only happen on a screen like this. And I think you're right about that too. And that was one of the things that Godard and I think all of the French New Wave filmmakers were really focused on the idea of what we can do in film that can only be done right. in film. Well, and that's where you get the manipulation of sound and those jump cuts and stuff like that. But the other thing I was thinking is, you know, cause he treats the characters with, um, I don't want to say disdain, but let's say indifference, like one can come out and one can come in and just like, I'll just murder this guy here for no reason, even though we've seen him for 80 minutes and like, is it a death warranted? Maybe not. Who cares? I think that's part of it too, is the idea of like, he's able to just kind of look more of at the devices and the medium, like you're saying, as opposed to like who the characters on are and what stories they're telling. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think as his career goes on and his films get more and more abstract, he abandons the idea of characters and plot almost entirely, I think in most of his later films. And that's, uh, this is kind of a turning point. This is if you want to regard that period of his 60s output, those 15 is, films, this is the last one. Yeah. yeah. So. And really his last like quote unquote narrative film for to like 72 or something. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and even the, the, the supposed the narrative films that he made later in his career are, are very loosely uh, narrative, I guess. Good, um, good one, Josh. Thank you. Sorry. Um, Pauline Kale is more articulate than me. She said, <laughs> only the title of Jean-Luc Godard's new film is casual and innocent. Weekend is the most powerful mystical movie since The Seventh Seal and Fires on the Plain and Passages of Kurosawa. When Godard is viciously funny, he's on top of things and he scores and scores and illuminates as he scores. When he becomes didactic, we can see that he really doesn't know any more about what should be done than the rest of us. But then he goes beyond didacticism into areas where, though he is as confused and divided as we are, his fervor and rage are so imaginatively justified that they are truly apocalyptic. It is in the further reaches, in the appalling, ambivalent, revolutionary vision, that Weekend is a great original work. 
And I don't know about that. I think she's right that the didacticism is the worst part of this movie. And when it's a satire and it's allegorical and it's, you know, clear he's saying something, it's playful and fun. But when he stops and he's just like, let me say something literally to the yeah. camera here for long stretches. There's a four minute monologue of someone's face talking for someone else. Right. It just lost me at that uh, point. And I agree with you, Josh. I, you know, yeah, like I was in it for the first half hour and it gradually kept losing me more and more. And I think ambivalence is a good word because it's like at the beginning, I mean, I don't, maybe the lesson here is you need characters to care about, right? You don't have to like them, but you have to care about them because I did, I did, I was interested in those characters at the beginning. And then the further off the rails this thing went, the further I went away from it. And I don't dislike movies that go off the rails. I just, this just felt like it got to the point of, well, I'm going to go farther and farther in a repetitive way. And, and I don't give a damn if you're with it or not. Right. Well, and that is, you know, in a way admirable that that Godard is never doing anything for any reason other than it's what he wants to do. Sure. Um, But I I agree with you that I I was with it for longer. I would say maybe two thirds of this. I was really quite enjoying it. And then when you get to that scene with uh, the uh, Algerian character, I think it is, and and an African character, I believe is what they're meant to be. I'm not sure. But these these two sort of revolutionaries who deliver these long monologues while eating sandwiches. Right. And you're seeing the other, like, it would be like, you're, I'm delivering a monologue, but I'm on your face. Right. Right. And you're delivering a monologue, but we're on my face. To me, it was when they slit the pig's throat. I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm out on this. Yeah. Thing. That, that is hard to watch too. And I mean, hard to watch again is sort of probably the point. He wants to be confrontational. He wants to make you uncomfortable, but I do think it, it loses you there, and in part because he's established characters and a sort of a plot that we're sort of invested in, and because he's done that well, we're annoyed when he gives up on it. Yeah, and uh, in general, Josh, now follow me here. I am not one for murdering animals on screen or off. That's not my thing. Don't yeah. like it. Okay, yeah. but also I don't think when they did this pig murder here, I don't think it served a purpose or the resonance that it wanted that Godard wanted it to have. I don't think it had it at that point. Yeah. I think you're kind of desensitized at that point to all of the craziness that it doesn't have that impact. And of course, that's also not something that you could ever put in a movie now, but which I'm glad about. I'm for it too, but it's, it's weirdly surprising how much actual violence against actual animals is in older films and not just weird French art films, but all sorts of films. It's weird. Anyway, that's a subject for another time. Andrew Saris in The Village Voice got to some of the ambivalence about this, even though he loved it. He said, Weekend consolidates Jean-Luc Godard's position as the most disconcerting of all contemporary directors, a veritable paragon of paradoxes, violent and yet vulnerable, the most elegant stylist and the most vulgar polemicist, the most remorseful classicist and the most relentless modernist, the man of the moment and the artist for the ages. When I bore witness to Weekend at the Berlin Film Festival, Godard seemed to be tuned in to the youthful frequency of the future. He lost me somewhere between the garbage truck of the third world and the slaughtered pig of the new breed, but I did feel the film unwinding with all the clattering contemporaneity of a ticker tape, and the reading for Western civilization was down, down, and out. So Sarah's referencing specifically two things we just talked right, about. Right, that is interesting, and 
um, you know, as we always talk about, we have to go back to the contextualization of what it was like when it was released. And I think the excitement of seeing this form being utilized in a way that people hadn't seen before, I could see how people could get behind that. And it's difficult for us to put ourselves in that position because we're so far down the line, what, you know, 54 years, as a matter of fact, and we've seen so much and experienced so much on film. But uh, at the same time, like if someone, I could also see like if 1967, if they were like, oh, weekend, it's amazing. You got to see it. I'm like, do you really like it? Or are you just saying that because you feel like you have to say you like it? Well, right. And that goes back to specifically what Pauline Kael talked about related to blow up, which she was uh, much less impressed with. And the idea that people were saying that as a sort of uh, posture yeah. or whatever, rather than an actual enjoyment. Do you really like Steely Dan? Or <laughs> do you just feel like you should like Steely Dan? I will say that I feel like I enjoyed this movie more than I enjoyed Blow Up in the time that I enjoyed it. And then when I stopped enjoying it, I really stopped enjoying it. But overall, mm. I found this a more uh, engaging experience. I was, I mean, yeah, except when you disengage, you disengage all the way. Right. That was true. That is true. But at, at least in blow up, like not that I don't know why we're comparing these two, at least in blow up, you're like, oh, well, I kind of got to stick around to see what happens at the end. But then you get to the end, and you're like, ah, why did I stick around? This wasn't worth it. You know? Right, right. And there's no, there's no narrative resolution to this film. I mean, there, there sort of is in a weird way with like the final line, but it doesn't actually satisfying anyway. I got a resolution, but that resolution was that nothing matters. We're all going to die. We're all going to kill each other and, uh, you know, enjoy what you can because the apocalypse is always here. And, uh, that's the, nothing means anything. I mean, so I think you really understood this film very, very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got it. <laughs> um, so I assume Jason, you hadn't seen this. One no, before. I hadn't. I'd seen, uh, one Godard, I only really one Godard, which we'll talk about, but I did watch, a number of Godards uh, leading up to this. And uh, yeah, I'd never seen it before this. And I feel my reaction of what the fuck was accurate. <laughs> yeah, that's a good reaction. I mean, I think even these these highly intellectual critics that we're talking about had a similar feeling to it in a lot of ways. Um, I had not seen it either. Like I said, I've seen a bunch of Godard movies and was really excited to watch his films, especially in college. And then, uh, you know, kind of got sidetracked or whatever and this was on a list along with a million other movies of something that i'd want to see so it was nice to have that chance to watch it um as well as two or three things um to kind of return to godard after not having seen a film of his in quite a while and there are other films of his that i like a lot more than this one yeah do you think he makes movies specifically for college students <laughs> i mean he might have at the time especially i mean now he's 90 i don't know mm -hmm. if he cares about college students anymore but um at the time he was making these films i'm sure that was a huge part of his audience and 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 maybe just in you know in a serious way to say that like he's trying to present radical ideas and who is likeliest to be open to such ideas might be college students. Yeah. And I, I remember that was the first time I saw a Godard movie and I was very open to it. Yeah. I mean, and just not soon after this, I mean, part of the reason that this, this sort of uh, classical Godard period ended is because he got involved in the protests of 1968 in France, which were student led and, you know, became even more passionate about politics and revolution and decided that was the sole purpose of his films essentially and and uh went off the the old deep end yeah very um 
unique career, shall we say. Indeed. And but, we'll, but this period, so prolific with so many important movies. Yeah, this period is amazing. And I don't know how, if any other director made this many movies in this short an amount of time that were this influential on cinema. You'd have to go back to the beginning of cinema. So Dave, had you seen this one? Had you seen any Godards? No, this is my first Godard. I was really glad to finally get around to him. I'm but sure you watched some others. It. Dave watched some other stuff too, going into this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I watched a couple of Godards going into this. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I might end up liking this more than both of you guys. So we'll yeah. see. As Can we I just say what it. assholes we sound like? I watched a couple of Godards <laughs> going into this. I mean, we're doing a podcast about films from 1967. I mean, we're already there, you know. Fair enough, Josh. <laughs> so we'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on Weekend. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we're talking about our foreign film pick, which is Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend. A very uh, abrasive film, I think you could say. Yeah, go ahead and explain it to us. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I will explain sort of the plot such as it is. Um, I mean, it does have a discernible plot, which is simply this couple are driving to Ouenville, which is a, <laughs> a small town somewhere outside uh, where they live in, in Paris to attend to the deathbed of the woman's father, who they may have killed uh, by poisoning him, and they want to inherit money. And uh, some, some stuff happens to them along the way, and eventually they do get there. But they also want to kill each other. They do want to kill each other, but more than wanting to kill each other, they want to kill her father and get his money. Right, to make sure that, that uh, he's dead so they get the money. And the stuff that happens along the way, Josh, go on about that. Yeah, it's some weird stuff. Um, <laughs> They encounter allegories for capitalism, I would say, and uh, the brutality of modern life. Wow. So, uh, you know, they, they, they leave. Well, I mean, really, even before they leave, they're encountering this stuff. I was going to say they leave Paris and end up in a Godard movie, but <laughs> they're already there, really. Yeah. Now, Josh, uh, these allegories for capitalism. What's your favorite allegory for capitalism? It doesn't even have to be from this film. Um, no, well, the, I mean, the, the, the most notable thing, the most memorable thing in this movie is this insane tracking shot. Yeah, I that, counted it. It's yeah. over four minutes long. And um, broken up by some title cards then and even then goes on even longer. So um, of this traffic jam, what looks what starts looking like just a backup of traffic that our characters are trying to drive past. and it goes from people doing uh, sort of time passing activities like throwing a ball back and forth or playing chess to, to more and more uh, dangerous and brutal activities uh, as they drive along this, this traffic jam, eventually to end up at a horrific accident that is causing the backup. Um, and then as they travel on, they, they find many, many more horrific accidents uh, along the way, which are presented... I mean, it's graphic and upsetting, but also funny in a way. Well, I mean, and this is in a number of Godard movies. Uh, let's say the special effects for blood were not really as advanced as his techniques of cinema, right? So the blood never really looks like blood, I'd say. But he has no problem, like, showing dead bodies of all ages. Like, you're just seeing dead kids on the road, and you're like, man, dude, chill out. So, um, 
But do that the, when we're talking about utilization of the form, like right then and there. Okay, so now let's say we have a five minute tracking shot and it does get repetitive, partially because you make sure that the sound of cars honking their horns is literally playing throughout the entire five minute shot. And also those title cards you're talking about, which flash at different intervals, some of which are sensical, some of which are more nonsensical. That you're just like, are you fucking with me, dude? Like, I what's mean, your yes, deal, bro? Of course you he know? is. <laughs> so, I mean, but that's what we're talking about when we say how he's playing with manipulating the, the the game here, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, he is. And I mean, as much as he's serious and and didactic, especially as we get in these actual like literal lectures later in the movie, he is also self-deprecating. I mean, one of the first title cards at the beginning of the movie says, uh, you know, we presents a, a movie found in the trash or something like that. Yeah. So he's willing to be self-deprecating. And then doesn't the last, as it ends, doesn't it say the end of cinema? Yes, it does. Like it does. And it's, a, you know, again, a kind of a playful thing. So it's, it says, you know, fin, the, the French film for the end. And then it does say, you know, de cinema, end of cinema. But then you see that the those two words are just part of the like registration number for the film or something. So it, it, it's even playing with that. So the first half hour, which included that tracking shot, it's just so bonkers, but I would laugh. Like I really liked it. Like you're just, you, you're on a balcony and you're seeing people get out of a car and just punch each other in the face. Like they're just, you're like, what am I watching? Then there's a whole scene where like um, a woman and her lover who is pretending to be her therapist, like go in a really, really explicit story of like a threesome that they had, but like it's all shot in shadows and one long take and the camera moves. And also like from time to time, Godard will just play sound effects. So you don't hear the full story. Like, it's like Are you fucking with me, dude. You know? <laughs> um, and then there's another, the funniest thing in the movie to me is like, there's another fight where like that couple backs up the that's our main couple they back up the car and they hit another car right and the the lady's like you hit my car you got to pay me now like, nah, your car is fine right and there's a little kid there like you know you got to pay us you got to pay us and they're gonna fight and then like um the the main couple they're okay they'll, well, they'll fight a lady and a kid they don't care whatever but then the lady calls out her husband and the husband comes out with a shotgun and the dog on a leash and he hands the dog on the leash to the kid so he can better aim the shotgun and it was like this is just what world are we in here but that was very funny to me yeah there's a lot of darkly funny things i i think of one so at a certain point the main couple loses their car they crash their car and escape uh, the fiery uh, conflagration and the, the woman is wailing and do you think maybe she's hurt, but she's, she's like, no, my Hermes handbag. Right. Um, so they're walking, still trying to get to Wainville, um to uh, get their inheritance. And there's a road strewn with dead bodies. And the guy starts asking them all, uh, do you know which way it is to Wainville? And of course they're all dead, so they can't say. And uh, after asking a few he he turns to his wife and says, these jerks are all dead. <laughs> I just love that. Like how inconsiderate is it for them to be dead when I need to get directions? But I think this goes back to what we were saying. Like when he's funny, he makes so much more of an impact, right? And those points about human nature and capitalism, if you will, like if that's what you want to go with, like there's even that thing in the B uh, kind of in that first half hour where like there's another car accident and it's uh, 
it's you know our main couple and like a farmer right on a tractor and the the argument becomes less about the car and the damage and more about um the proletariat and the bourgeois you know and it's like that stuff's all funny because it's so heightened and ridiculous but like you said when you get into it and like it's like now we're gonna like let's bring things down for a moment it's like don't play the slow songs Godard. You know, keep on, keep on with the hits there, buddy. So. I agree. I mean, I think the the absurdity and the allegory, it's not like you don't get what he's saying. And it's not necessary for him to stop the movie and deliver these ridiculously long monologues to just literally tell you what he wants you to know. Uh, or at one point, I think during either that monologue or one of the later speeches from the, the cannibal... Um, revolutionary cell that they're eventually kidnapped by at the end of the movie, he flashes back to previous stuff as if he's saying, remember this weird scene? Here's what I was trying to tell you in that scene in, in case you didn't get it. Yeah. And, and I just thought that was, that was annoying. And, and it lost me because I'm not interested in being lectured to, uh, especially when I don't need to be in order for you to get your point across. Yeah. I think I wrote down this quote that I think, I think it was actually in the movie, but if not, it was when I was researching, but I think it was in the movie. The horror of the bourgeois could only be overcome by more horror or with more horror. That's like, that's the movie right there. Right? Yeah. And that's where we're going more and more horror. And, um, you know, like as I'm watching and then researching, it's like, well, he's referencing Karl Marx and Lewis Carroll and Francis Ponge and Norman O'Brown and, you know, Jacques Lacan and MGM Lacan. And I'm like, I, I know who Karl Marx is. So I got, so that's good, right? So, right. you know, like he's pulling stuff that feels um, extremely erudite and tough to keep up with at times. I mean, it is, but, you know, Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland. I mean, that's certainly a populist reference. And and he also references films. The the cannibal uh, yeah. revolutionaries are communicating with each other in film code names. This is the second film we've talked about this season to reference The Searchers. And also the second film that... Uh, didn't we talk about uh, Julio Cortazar on Blow Up, the author? Oh, maybe. Yeah, I believe this uh, La Autopista del Sur, the Southern Thruway, his story was also inspire inspiration to this. So, right. but the searchers, like, yeah, if we're going to talk about a film that you know kind of helped create the language of film, and there you go. Yeah, um, something that Scorsese referenced in uh, Who's That Knocking and at My Star Door? Star Wars is, you know, that's the whole thing. Well, that too, but I'm just yeah talking about this season. Um, so, I mean, I think that's one of the great things about Godard or about Godard in this period is that he's as enamored of stuff like the searchers as he is of Karl Marx. And then he just kind of goes all the way in that other direction as he continues on in his career. But the best stuff of his in the sixties is as much about classic Hollywood as it is about Marxism. Yeah. All the best stuff in the sixties from him are character driven. Right. When you're involved with the characters, you're more involved with the story. And it's interesting because he's so good at it that he wants to move away from it. Right. Well, I think, again, he's he's this sort of he's always wanting to challenge the audience and himself. And I could see him thinking like, oh, the audience is comfortable with me doing this and I have uh, perfected it. So I must stop. You know, mm -hmm. I can't just be complacent about my filmmaking. And I don't know if that's true. If he's ever said anything, he doesn't really, I don't think he really gives interviews uh, or hasn't in a very long time, but I could see that being his attitude. Dave? <laughs> Thoughts? 
I, I mean, to me, the thing with this movie is with these kinds of like antagonistic filmmakers like this, you kind of have to take the parts that you don't like so much along with the good stuff, you know, and some of the stuff you guys are bringing up are some of my favorite parts in the movie as well. And I think that stuff outweighs the like the lesser moments, like the talking to the, you know, to the screen, kind of giving the point directly to you or the slower parts or the parts that are like, what exactly is going on here parts. Um, I just think the other parts are so good that it, it outweighs it. Yeah, I mean, and I kind of tend to agree, maybe not as strongly, because again, the first hour or so of this, I thought, oh, this is really enjoyable. And especially after having just watched that other movie, which I really didn't care for, and is just all lecturing. You think there's lecturing in this movie? That movie has whispered voiceover from Godard himself virtually the entire time talking about capitalism. But that really, oh that he does do his own voiceover a lot like in all these movies right? yeah yeah but yeah. in that one he literally whispers it the entire time it's like watching a, an asmr video about uh how the proletariat will rise um, but so i appreciated the more playful tone and i think for me part of the problem was that all of the stuff that i didn't like was sort of condensed into the last part of the movie so at sure. the end i left with this negative impression I and i had to kind of remind myself of how much i liked earlier in the film i totally agree with that yeah i wrote in my letterbox review i was like the last 20 minutes just kind of loses you you know yeah did you now you guys have you read the origin of the family private property and the state by friedrich engels I have not, but it seems like something that college students read. Well, I, if you guys haven't read it, then I'm not going to go into my whole theory Forget about it. that in this film. But, you know, get back to me and we'll talk. Right. I mean, but I don't think you necessarily have to have read like a lot of Marx and Engels to appreciate or or understand the general message of this film, which is not subtle. Uh, no, it's not. So, but I mean, even the things like that, that sex, uh, that the crazy threesome discussion, that's also based on a story of Georges Bataille's His Dole de Luel. Josh, you do the French. Oh, man, I don't know. But uh, anyway, Bataille, but yeah. I mean, like, this guy's pretty well read is my point. <laughs> that that he is. Yeah. Godard is certainly very well read and, you know, and started out as an academic and a critic himself. So yeah. he comes from that background. Well, look, and, and we're getting a little off track because <laughs> this is, uh, you know, this still is a movie. Okay, um, <laughs> but I did want to talk about uh, Raoul Cotard, the cinematographer who did most of all of Godard's best work, and especially in this uh, time period. And when you talk about like setting up the language of film, he's as influential as a director of photography as there probably has ever been. Yeah, and, and you know, Godard deserves lots of credit, but it's not like he did everything by himself. I mean, there's collaborators here who are very important, and and that's one of them. And Stuff like setting up that tracking shot, which must have been extraordinarily difficult to get. Right. Like, and we're doing it on this low budget. And but I mean, I think in all these Godard movies from this time period, there's iconic shots and sequences. And you have to like be like, dude, this this dude was just um, they, they spoke the same language to each other, even if no one else was speaking that language. Right. And I can imagine. I mean, some some of his acting collaborators probably were more on his wavelength than yeah. others. But I can imagine, you know, again, deliberately hiring these mainstream French actors to appear in this movie. I have to wonder how much they really got what they were doing or they just thought, hey, it's Godard. He's a genius. So I'm going to do whatever he says. Well, yeah. And maybe that's part of the commentary because if they're mainstream TV actors, like, I mean, I'm trying to think of what that would be today. Who would you hire? But 
there's not really such a thing as mainstream TV. Yeah, anymore, everyone right? is, is so, both. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, that that's definitely it. This is not, you know, his, you know, classic leading man and leading lady, but uh, they do the they do the job. Yeah, they're fine. I would think it's the equivalent of something recent, maybe like Paul Thomas Anderson or the softies working with Adam Sandler, you know, someone who is thought of as this super mainstream figure being placed into this artsy uh, context. All right. Maybe. I don't know. That's what came to mind. But maybe it's not quite the same. All right. I'm going to think on that, Josh. All right. You, you think on that. So I, I, I don't know what else to say <laughs> about this movie. I think we movie. covered just about all of it, right? I mean, I'm sure there's more weird philosophical tangents but we we are we are not well read as godard so no but we've talked but like a lot of the things that we've talked about this season you know in other films sound design layering of uh sounds and here you know he's messing with you with the title cards and just everything like uh a lot of it is coming from this movement here french new wave yes that that it is i mean whatever mixed feelings we might have about this film or about Godard, you can't deny his incredible importance and influence. No. How much of that budget do you think went into crashed cars? Uh, most yeah, of it. Yeah, most of it, I would imagine. Yeah. Although those stars, you know, if they were big stars in France, he might have, you know, they might have cost more than a, a typical actor that he would have cast. And it's, but. it's uh, yeah, he really uses money well. So, and he does that in all his movies, I think. Yeah, so. and also, you know, he's a communist, so he has contempt for money. Yeah, true. So there's that. Want to rate this thing, Josh? Yeah. Should we rate this out of five uh, horrifically mangled bodies on the side of the road? <laughs> That's a classic Josh pick right there. So I, it gets two and a half from me, Josh. Really enjoyed a lot of that first 30 minutes. It lost me, but I can appreciate and respect its place. And that other half of the mangled body has just been disintegrated because it's mangled so much. Yeah. I'm sort of at a loss for how to rate this, honestly, because my feelings sort of swerved much like a car crash so often. I gave it a two and a half on Letterboxd, but I might give it a three just because I did really appreciate the first hour or so. And it lost me so hard that my overall impression was negative, but certainly impressed with it as an accomplishment. So between two and a half and three bodies, they're, they're all in various little pieces around. Give it a 2.75. There you go. Almost a whole body, mm. but not quite. I'm missing an arm. Dave, how would you rate this? <laughs> I'm going with a three and a half and I almost would have went up a half if it wasn't for that poor pig. Wow. Oh yeah. That pig was, yeah, hard, that was to, horrible. hard to that watch. That was just terrible. Yeah. No good. Good <laughs> All right. Well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of weekend. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we've been talking about our foreign film pick, Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend, which has defeated us, I think. (laughs) Um, But I mean, we've been talking this whole time essentially about the legacy of Godard, which is that he is one of the most influential filmmakers of all time. Yeah. So Josh, get into it. You've seen more than most of us. In this room, <laughs> go go. Give us what's your uh, what's your favorite and your least favorite that you've seen. Um, I mean, honestly, I keep saying I just because I watched it recently. The two or three things I know about her may be my least favorite, um, which is also from this year, and is really again getting into the idea of Godard just creating films that are essays about Marxism and yeah. not 
stories. But Josh, since it is Godard, it's also your favorite. And therein lies the right. Godardness. Right? Yeah. No, I mean, and, and even as I was annoyed by that film, I could be impressed with what, what he's doing and, you know, how he's messing with the, the cinematic form and all that. I mean, I probably have to go back to Breathless as my favorite, even though I haven't seen it in a long time. But I remember watching that in college and just being blown away and amazed by it. And having seen stuff like Steven Soderbergh films, realizing, oh, so much of, of what directors that I like now, what they do comes from this. Yeah, you mentioned Soderbergh. Obviously, we got to mention Tarantino, A Band Apart, which uh, band of which is the French title, Band of Outsiders, which is another Godard movie. That was his production company with Lawrence Bender. So, you know, they, there you go. Uh, to me, my favorite is was and is uh, Piero LeFou. From 1965, I think that's the one that encapsulates his ability to for madness and absurdity and technique and playing with the form the best while giving me something coherent and just constantly interesting. Yeah, and I think that's the tough thing is that he balances those challenging subversive elements with characters and story. And then as the 60s goes on, he clearly abandons the the more traditional aspects yeah and those two uh are both breathless and Piero lefou are both john paul belmondo and his ex-wife uh anna karina right yeah. so that's kind of the classic trio with and then uh you know as we mentioned Qatar, uh the cinematographer like that's kind of like that core group that you want to see together right and breathless is his first film and it's amazing as a first time feature filmmaker for him to have that much confidence in those techniques and those things that he was doing. I think one of the best things about Breathless is the use of jump cuts, which, you know, we, we talked about just recently in uh, Scorsese, who's at knocking at my door and like, yeah, it's, it's so good of setting a mood and character. That's the thing is like, he's so good with character. It's such a bummer that he goes away from that, you know? Right. And I, I, I think he just, you know, sees characters as bourgeois, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I wonder if he thinks like other humans are just like they're all bourgeois pigs and like in the way of whatever he's trying to accomplish. I think likely. I mean, he's definitely known for being a crank and a recluse. Uh, like I said, I don't know when the last time was he gave an interview or anything like that. Uh, I mean, he continues to work steadily. He's 90 years old or 91 years old now. Um, his most recent film was The Image Book in 2018. Um, and he still has a core of fans, Dedicated. I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, and not just that, but I mean, if Godard makes a new film, it'll play at the Cannes Film Festival. It'll play in Venice. It'll play in it Berlin. Should, it should. Yeah. And it should. Dave, do you have a favorite of the ones you watched? Actually, probably this weekend. I, Look at that. Like I said, the things that worked for me worked so well. I just thought it was great. Did you have a least favorite? I only weekend. watched Breathless. So oh, yeah, yeah, Weekend. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but so, I really like Breathless also. Yeah. Um, I mean, the big ones, like we said, are, you know, probably those four breathless, uh, band of outsiders, Piero LeFou, and then, uh, the contempt with Brigitte Bardot was his most commercially successful film, Yeah, which, uh, I remember seeing that also like in a French film class in, in college and, and liking that a lot. Uh, also my life to live with Anna Karina is yeah. great. Um, some of those I've saw so long ago though. I don't remember. What, uh, now Josh, this is like. Yeah, so for someone who is just getting into it, this is the period you watch, and and this is the period most people watch. But have you seen stuff from the other periods? I have not. I mean, and considering that there's still a few of those '60s movies that I still haven't seen, those would be the ones that I would watch. 
And I don't know if there's anything from the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, this this much, much, much longer period where he was continually making movies. I don't know that there's anything that stands out as much um, that is considered brilliant, that is considered a classic. Just looking on Letterboxd, for example, and you can order it by popularity, uh, Goodbye to Language, which is, I think, from 2014, maybe, or maybe a little earlier than that. Is, is highly rated on there. And that may very well just be because it's on some streaming service or something. Yeah. But, you know, and he continues to play with the form. I'm not sure if it was that one or if it was the image book where it was in 3D and there was a lot of things that he was doing where you can only see certain parts of the image with the 3D. Um, oh, and cool. he's not using it like, uh, you know, some blockbuster filmmaker would use it. But, you know, even at the age that he's at and even after all his years of filmmaking, he's saying, here is a current technological aspect that I can fuck with. I wonder if there's anything from those periods that return to any type of commercial standpoint. Not to say that these were commercial, but that more accessible standpoint. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure commercial wise. I mean, he made a film of King Lear at one point. Um, there's one film he made. I can't think of the title now, but that's like a detective story that was written by someone else. And I would imagine that even when tackling that material, he comes at it from a subversive place. But it's possible that those films have more recognizable plots and characters than some of his other films. Mm. So then let me ask you this, Josh. Yes. Going back to Friedrich Engels. No. Um, <laughs> well, Josh, so how do you reconcile a legacy of someone who was so prolific and so important and so unique and then who just went so far off the deep end? And the one hand, you're like, well, he gave us all this great work. But on the other hand, you're like, think of uh, the other work that he could have given us if he had just, you know, kind of maybe come in just a little bit more. I mean, I think even if he had died in 1968, his legacy of those films in the 60s would be massive. And it right. almost doesn't matter that he didn't do anything else so? as influential. No, because that doesn't take away from the influence of these films. It doesn't take away from how many people like Quentin Tarantino and Steven Soderbergh watched Breathless and were blown away and, and took that into account. And they went on to make films that were commercial and successful and accessible. Yeah, but if Tarantino just made 30 years of like anti-capitalist monologues now, wouldn't you be like, oh man, there's so much more you could have accomplished here. Yeah, sure. But again, it still wouldn't take away from the greatness of Pulp Fiction. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that. I mean, you know, I don't know. You know, the only thing I compare it to, and this guy did not put out music, but uh, Cat Stevens was so great in like the 70s. And then when he went off in his religious sojourn, he just like stopped making music completely. And you're like, oh, man, there's so much more you could have given us out there, you know? Right. So. But that doesn't mean that what he did do. No, it was great. That's yeah, it saying. was still just as great and just yeah. as important. So, I mean, I also, I don't think, you know, we talked about Tarantino and he's he's really uh, adamant about the idea of making a small number of films and then retiring, you know, and I, I don't think we have to expect great filmmakers to make great films for their entire lives in order for their legacies to be cemented. I'm not saying that, but you would think that there would be some ebbs and flows instead of like one giant climb <laughs> to the rock, you know, up the rocket for like 10 years and then just the descent into madness, so to speak. And I look, I'm speaking just on reputation stuff because I haven't seen those movies either. Right. No, I haven't either. And, and it's possible that there are some gems in there, whether they're hidden gems or or not hidden, and the people who are dedicated to Godard's work know that, oh, this film he made in 1984 or whatever is brilliant. 
it's a lot of those films are hard to find in comparison to his 60s yeah. films and so it's just not something that i've ever i mean if anyone finds like a list of like top 10 godard movies it's literally this time period it is it is almost always this time period yes um and you know and he also i think it doesn't help that he has this reputation of being a jerk um you know the most memorable godard moment that i can think of in recent film is in agnes varda's movie faces places and she's another major French new wave filmmaker and sort of the opposite of Godard in a way, because she sustained this career and became more and more beloved as she got older and made these very humanistic documentaries as she got into her eighties and nineties and faces places is one of those. And she is friends with Godard. And, uh, they, one of the things that happens in that film is she, she calls him and they're going to go visit him, her and, uh, JR, who is the co-director of this film. He's a photographer and they go to Godard's house and he stands them up. And it's like this beloved old lady. And the whole movie is about how wonderful she is. And her old friend won't even see her. So does he just say, no, I'm not going to, No, he says he's, he's called, she calls him and he says, come visit. And then they get to his house and he leaves a note like, never mind, I'm not here. Oh, interesting. Well, that's a bummer. <laughs> it is a bummer. I mean, and it's it's an extra bummer because he's so reclusive. The idea of, oh, we might actually see Godard on screen here and she'll talk to him and she can talk to him because she's his colleague and his friend, um, you know, and is as great and important a filmmaker as he is in a lot of ways. But even even her, he well, won't. there's something so romantic, right, about thinking of like him and Anna Karina, and they're like, you know, like, hey, we're breaking all this ground, and you know, we're doing something so unique, and we're we're using our form to move the entire world of art forward. And then you're like, oh yeah, they got divorced, and that didn't work out either. So. Right? Yeah, and he's he's been with his current partner since like the late '70s. So you know, whoever that I forget her name, but yeah. Um, not as notable as Anna Karina in the film world. No, like I said, it's the it's the four of them when those four are together, you know, Godard, Karina, Belmondo, and Katard. Like those are just like, come on, what a what a dream team. That it is. I mean, aside from Godard, Murray Dark and uh, Jean Yan, the stars of this film, did not become art house figures after working with Godard, no. went right back to working in in mainstream French TV and film and they're not people that we're particularly familiar with here in the U.S., but both of them worked very steadily throughout their careers. Um, so kind of a weird anomaly to go off and work with Godard and then go back to what they've been doing before. But that's cool. Yeah. Know? And then uh, Jean-Pierre Leroux. Uh, did you like that? That was pretty that was good. That was not bad, yeah. actually, yeah. Uh, who was in this film as one of those kind of like uh, soldiers on the battlefield giving a monologue, right? He became a very, very well-known, well-utilized actor uh, throughout all types of medium and uh you know tv film he he worked pretty constantly in uh, france yeah but uh godard i think not i mean i guess anna karina became you know she and gene seberg too from breathless icons you know but but i think godard especially in this period was less interested in creating movie stars than he was in just using those actors as another tool like the cars to get his message across yeah but i feel like anna karina the movies that they did there was more to the character than, you know, um, Seberg and Breathless, I'd say. Yeah, so. no, that's probably true. But but certainly Seberg and Jean-Paul Belmondo, too. I mean, those those guys, those were big, big stars, thanks uh, largely to their work. Yeah, and I should art. have mentioned uh, Seberg there because I, I, it sounds like I'm lumping them in, but it's Seberg and Breathless and then Karina and those other three that we talked about there. So um, and I didn't see Contempt, but, um, you know, I'm sure you said Bridget Bardot. Yeah, it's Bridget Bardot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, who was a major star 
independently of Godard. But yeah. you know, that was. I think her presence is part of why that movie is is his most commercially successful film. I mean, interesting performances. He gets interesting performances. Yeah, he does. But again, I just think of it as it's sort of just like one other tool that he can subvert um, the performance. Yeah, you almost wonder if they're like, you know, you've created these iconic images of women. If he's like, oh, that's a waste of my time. (laughs) I could absolutely see him saying that about many, many, many things. Yeah. so anything else on the legacy of Weekend you want to mention here? What the fuck? Indeed. Indeed. So let's end on that. That is Weekend. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on the social media. Yeah, you should. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. It's like a later Godard film. You don't really have to bother with it. So, um awesomemovieyear.com a little better it's got an about section and an rss feed awesome movie year on facebook and instagram awesome movie pod on twitter hey and don't forget check out my other podcast it's about food in las vegas food and loathing i'm looking forward to listening to food and loathing you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com at joshbellhateseverything on facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And don't forget to check out our Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces Facebook group, where I'm sure there's some fans of those later Godard films. Yeah, tell us how uh, but how much we're, we're Philistines for not appreciating yeah. Godard properly. <laughs> I can't wait. until I want to know which are the ones that we should know about i don't know like hopefully people in that group will tell us yes uh and in the meantime what are we talking about in our next episode josh it's my pick finally (laughs) what a trudge get there no hey man you know we're gonna keep the icons coming it's cool hand luke with one of my favorite actors of all time one of the best of all time paul newman so tune in next time for cool hand luke and thanks for listening to awesome movie year Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.